This episode contains discussion about mental illness and violence. It may be upsetting for some. Listener discretion is advised. Hello and welcome to Killer Queens, a true crime podcast. I'm your host, Torella. And I'm your better, prettier, younger host, Tori. We're sisters who are obsessed with true crime and love gal palin with you about cases. You can expect the occasional curse word, lots of friends quotes, and all the 90s nostalgia. To get in on the conversation, check us out at KillerQueensPodcast.com. You can also find us on Instagram and Facebook at KillerQueensPodcast. And we're on YouTube at KillerQueens, a true crime podcast. Okay, y'all, grab your Capri Suns or your Surge and let's talk about some true crime. Our story today takes place on January 18th, 1983 in Coquitlam, British Columbia. We'll be discussing mental illness, and in this case, we talk specifically about schizophrenia. We decided to cover this case now because October 4th through 10th is Mental Illness Awareness Week. Saturday, October 10th is National World Mental Health Day. According to the NAMI website, which is National Alliance on Mental Illness, Mental Illness Awareness Week is dedicated to raising awareness around the topic of mental illness. The website states, We believe that mental health conditions are important to discuss year-round, but highlighting them during Mental Illness Awareness Week provides a dedicated time for mental health advocates across the country to come together as one unified voice. We also believe in the importance of discussing mental health and illness and reducing the stigma still present in society today. This week's case is the exception, not the rule, with mental illness and more specifically schizophrenia. According to an article in Schizophrenia Bulletin, persons with schizophrenia are undoubtedly at increased risk of becoming victims of violence in the community setting with risks up to 14 times the rate of being victimized compared with being arrested as a perpetrator. But the article goes on to state that despite this fact, most of the literature available regarding the association between schizophrenia and violence has focused on perpetration rather than victimization. It's easy to see how this fact, coupled with cases reported in the media, would lead to skewed public perception and stigmatization of mental illness. This week, it's our hope that by having the conversation, we can provide resources with information about mental illness, discuss warning signs to be aware of, and let you know that you're not alone. Every single person is affected by mental illness in some way. Tori and I both have and continue to struggle with depression and anxiety. We've both taken medication for these issues and are also huge proponents for therapy and learning about different coping strategies. We're not ashamed, and if you've dealt with any type of mental health issues in any way, you shouldn't be either. We're all human. Every single one of us. We all struggle. But we want you to know that being a human and all the things that that can entail is normal. And should you see any of the warning signs we'll discuss in a person that you know, please speak up. Get help. If we can have these discussions and normalize them, we can prevent cases like the one we are talking about this week. Let's get started. Welcome to Killer Queens. Hey. Hey. We are covering a wild and it's sad case, I would say. It involves mental illness. And because this is the first week of October, it's Mental Illness Awareness Week. And, you know, we wanted to kind of touch on something with that, which we've kind of already talked about, but um, it is, it's a really sad case. It's, I mean, we've said it before and we'll say it again. Every case is sad, but this one is, is, yeah, 
I don't know. I think every case we do, we're like, every case is sad, but this one is especially sad. And then I the know, next we case do. we'll be yeah, like, we but this that. one is especially sad. I know, because you get like super invested in something when you're like talking about reading it. about it all the time, talking about it. Yeah, all that kind of stuff. Sure. Um, and it's also scary like to think about the... Because I've seen, you know, some of those movies. Um, what's the ones the? It's like they have the girl's name, the 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 haunting of whoever, the possession of whoever, that kind of stuff. Oh, sure, yeah. I mean, that terrifies me to think that, like, Are, do you mean like possession type of things? Well, I I mean, like those kind of things scare me because it's like something out of your control. But it does also scare me to think that you know, should you develop a condition such as Bruce, his mental illness from its onset to its climax was like 46 days, really. I mean, it was so fast. So we're talking something similar to maybe like Amityville Horror. Yes. Okay. Yes. Yeah. And so you're, I don't know. It's just, it's really scary to think that, you know, that you can lose sight of what's real, what's not real, what's happening, your perception, you know, everything just completely changes. It's it's kind of terrifying. Absolutely. That kind of stuff, I mean, as awful, terrible, I'm not saying anything good about it. Um, it's It can't be helped, you know? I mean, it's not anybody's fault or any, you know. Right. But it is yeah. incredibly interesting to me, if I can say so. It is. It's very interesting. Yeah, it's interesting. It's And I think that that's really why it's important to talk about cases like this because Instead of making it this thing that's like, ooh, we don't talk about it, you know, don't talk about it. If we do talk about it, first of all, you know, if you see something in yourself that you're not sure about, would you maybe feel more comfortable asking for help? Like, hey, there's something going on here. I'm not really sure this should be happening. And B, would we be able to recognize signs rather than kind of sweeping stuff under the rug and get people the help that they need? I mean, we're all people like absolutely stuff happens. You know, our bodies are so complicated. Our brains are so complicated, like things happen. So we have help out there. Well, yeah. And things are out of outside of your control. And it doesn't it doesn't directly reflect on who you are as a person Mm -hmm. negatively. Like it just is kind of like Andrea. Yates. I mean, if she had gotten help from somebody other than a Mm -hmm. very. Yes. um, Yes. Yeah. And what's sad about this case is that Bruce was poised to get the help that he needed and it still didn't happen. So there's that like slip between the cracks of, kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So um I guess let's just quit dancing around it and let's talk about it. If you want to talk I mean, I've got all the time in the world. We can talk for another forty five minutes about it. I know. I really have nothing else to do today. I've cleared my whole schedule. So <laughs> I think we ought to make this one a nine hour episode. What do you say? Perfection. Love it. Um, in keeping with the nine hour episode, though, we do want to just let you know, if you want ad free episodes, bonus episodes, more episodes, check out our Patreon. Lots of stuff there. Oh, yes. You will not be disappointed. Yes. <laughs> you might be disappointed <laughs> in what I just did there but yeah you won't be disappointed go check it out and um, enjoy i regret uh, opening my mouth i don't even know yeah i know i know that was embarrassing <laughs> and i was i was here for it we're all here for it but Gross. but you know what we're here for you oh thank you all right 
I'm going to start by saying that I read the book A Voice Out of Nowhere by Janice Holly Booth for this case. I read some other documents and stuff online, but there's not a lot out there. This case happened in 1983. Um, There's not a lot on it. It's honestly really hard to find stuff. So unless you read this book, you're not going to get details on it other than a couple of like news articles. I did find a couple of like court documents, but that's it. So... It's uh, it's a great read. It goes into a lot of detail. Um, I'll link to it in the show notes if you want to grab it. I like read it Kindle version on Amazon. Um, but that being said, like I know some people kind of get cranky when we don't use a ton of sources. There's just not a ton of sources out there. So she wrote the book on it. Working with what we have. She was there for most of it. Like she got all the transcripts and all that kind of stuff. So I'm gonna trust her. Mm-hmm. I think she knows what she's talking about. So just letting everybody know that's where most of it came from. It was about 5.30 a.m. when William, not his real name, was boiling water for a morning cup of tea. He couldn't sleep and had finally decided to get out of bed rather than try to fight it any longer. As the kettle whistled, William pulled it off the burner before it became loud enough to wake his still-sleeping family. But the noise didn't stop. What was that? Was that a person screaming? He looked out his kitchen window to see two shapes in the neighbor's yard moving around. One looked as if it pushed the other one, and he could hear a voice screaming, Help! Help! His eyes began to adjust to the darkness outside, and the fuzzy shapes started to become more clear. The two shapes looked like men, one larger than the other. The smaller man was barking at the larger man to get inside the house, pushing and kicking him as he yelled. And just like that, the two shapes disappeared into the garage. A strange interaction, especially for 5.30 in the morning, but maybe it was just an argument, a family matter. William didn't want to get involved and make this a bigger deal than it was. Then the man who'd forced the other into the garage came out and retrieved some sort of item. He was wearing a leather jacket, jeans, and some sort of headband. He went back into the house with it like he was on a mission. Just then he heard another scream. This was definitely a scream. No mistaking it this time. He dropped his mug and it shattered on the floor. Something was happening. Two more figures ran through the yard, one clearly being chased and begging, no, no, not me. Then William heard two pops and the shape that had begged for mercy fell to the ground. William froze and watched in horror as the man drugged the person who had just fallen into the garage. And then, the garage door slowly closed. This was no family argument. He called the police. RCMP officers arrived at the home in question to find a young man in his early 20s wearing a leather jacket, jeans, and a leather headband wandering around the property. They asked him about the report of gunshots, and he replied he didn't know anything about it. The house behind him was lit up like a Christmas tree. Every light in the house was on, Trace Atkins style. Once inside, officers found the bodies of six people, all dead. As they moved through the home, surveying the horrific scene, they received some news on their radio. Suspect has just admitted he is the Antichrist and the world is going to end on the 31st. Bruce Blackman was born in 1960 to Richard and Irene Blackman and had five siblings. He was also a twin. So Bruce and his twin brother, Todd, were practically opposites. I feel like the whole way through, I'm going to be like, pay attention to that, pay attention to that. (laughs) But like, pay attention to that. 
So beginning around middle school, their differences in personality really started to show. I mean, I don't know. I have two kids and I feel like their personality differences showed from day one. Like, I just assumed two boys would be like the same, you know? Right. But I mean, look at us. I mean, we're we are so the same goddamn person in a lot of ways, but we are polar opposites in other ways. Like, it's ridiculous. So, yeah. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. And I mean, them being twins, I guess you I don't know if they had them dressed alike or anything like that. But once they hit middle school, their core, I guess, kind of personalities really started to come through. And like their, you know, just the kind of stuff that sets in as as time goes on. But Todd was one of those kids that was like. He he. School came naturally to him. Learning came naturally to him. He always did really well in school. He didn't have to try maybe as hard, but it just, it came naturally. But he cared about it too. He was very on top of stuff. He was a really reliable kid. He was very punctual and, you know, all those things. He kept his hair cut short. He valued personal hygiene. He was always showered. He was always, you know. I would consider that an asset. I enjoy personal hygiene. I enjoy other people enjoying personal hygiene as well. So like, yes, you know, I appreciate that. Bruce, on the other hand, kept his hair like long and shaggy. Gross. I know. Ew. Long hair. Ew. No. But he just like didn't wash it a whole lot. He didn't necessarily change his clothes all that often. Um, He just didn't care. It's like Big Daddy when Frankenstein, he was the smelly kid in school. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He's like, you don't want to be the smelly kid in school. Mm-mm. And he didn't do well in school. He had a lot of problems learning and he didn't like, you know, Todd's bringing home report cards that are like all A's. Bruce is failing. He's having trouble. So they're just different. And his mom would say stuff like, Todd's getting good grades. I know that you can, you know, like, it's not, I don't know, maybe she felt like it wasn't something that was like inherent because if Todd could do it, so could Bruce because they're twins. Like, I don't know, but I don't know that they ever said like, why can't you be more like Todd? But it was just very like, why, how come Todd can do so much better and you're failing? I think they felt like you're just not trying. You have everything that you need. You're not putting in the effort, maybe. Well, and I know every set of siblings, there's that competition and sibling rivalry but I can't imagine what it's like for twin brothers or twin sisters or whoever especially if your parents are kind of like not pitting you against each other but comparing constant comparisons yeah yeah and Bruce really looked up to Todd and they were really close but yeah that definitely is gonna weigh on you you know So with him failing not doing well in school at all Irene finally was like you know what maybe we need to have you evaluated. You know, maybe there's a learning disability here, which Bruce 100% did not appreciate. Well, who does? But there's something going on, you know? So she took him to a psychologist to have him evaluated. And the doctor told Bruce that he is a mirror twin. And so the doctor explained that mirror twins is a rare phenomenon among twins where one twin, quote unquote, mirrors the traits or afflictions of the other. Okay. So then what the doctor said is like, this can take, this can kind of present itself in different ways. Like say one twin is left-handed and the other one's right-handed. 
they're opposite. It's like, that's stupid. How many people are left-handed, right-handed? Like, that's just a thing. It's a, like, a toy cross. Cross. Call. Toy. Coin. Co- <laughs> what the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> what? <laughs> what am I trying to say? <laughs> <laughs> like, oh my god! I was like, "Cost isn't a word. It must be." Cross. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! I'm crying. That was so funny. <laughs> I just snorted a twin cor- cross. <laughs> <laughs> None of those were words. None of them. <laughs> But it was like, like it was like your brain was so sure that something was right there, but you had to figure out what the other one was. It was just so funny. Oh my god, am I a mirror twin? Yeah. I said twin cause <laughs> because I was like I fa- I found fault with the word cause. I was like cause is not a word. I really feel like that's not a word. Toin got it down. Cause okay, maybe it's a cross. change. It's gonna be cross. It's gonna be cross. <laughs> okay. <laughs> oh, that's <was> funny. <laughs> okay, so so <laughs> just because just because one twin has is right-handed <laughs> and the other one is left-handed doesn't mean like I don't know. I just feel that doesn't mean like yeah, I feel like they were trying to make this like coincidental thing, this big phenomenon. It's like, no. People are just like, it's like us. You're right-handed. I'm left-handed. Exactly. Yeah. It's like, it can just have, uh, it doesn't mean that you have this like crazy phenomenon. So he said, that's one way it can present itself. Another way is like, say one twin has health issues or physical afflictions or whatever, like injuries, prone to injury, whatever it is on the right side of their body. The other twin will have all that same stuff, but on the left side of their body. I feel like it's kind of the same thing or it reminds me of like when you go to a bogus psychic and they're like, do you know anybody with the with a name that starts with a B? And they're like, oh, my gosh, yes. When I was in the third grade, and like, oh, my gosh, you know, like exactly. I'm like, are you serious? So the doctor said your yours presents itself now. And he was like, you know, you guys are just you're meant to be opposite. Everything that you do will be the opposite of Todd and vice versa. Right. Which, okay. So the doctor was like, Bruce, you're dyslexic. Todd can see things the way they're supposed to be seen, but your brain doesn't process things that way. You see everything reversed or opposite. See? What could that be doing for poor little baby Bruce's self-esteem and mental state about himself? Like where he's like, okay, well... So obviously, since Todd is perfect, that means that Bruce is imperfect, clearly. Exactly. And that's exactly what he did. So he was like, okay, all right. So I'm supposed to mirror Todd. I don't have to try anymore. I can just accept that I I am not going to do well because I'm not supposed to do well. Todd is supposed to go on and be successful and I'm not. So I'm just going to stop trying because why disappoint myself? It's my lot in life to just fall short. Exactly. He decided he would just be like this laid back, whatever happens, happens kind of thing. I'm not going to try anymore. But he found purpose in life by being Todd's mirror twin. 
So like the antithesis. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. What's really weird though is that when they were born, Todd was born first, and he was a lot bigger than Bruce. He was nine pounds six ounces. Bruce was exactly six pounds nine ounces. That's kind of eerie. I know. And so Bruce was like exactly opposite, just like the doctor said. I mean, that's yeah, that that's we only are perpetuating that. Exactly. And that, I mean, that's what's going to happen a lot in this case is that Bruce starts to find these things and then he will look at stuff and it will kind of confirm that to him, you know, almost like that confirmation bias. Like, I know this to be true. Now I'm looking for everything to fit into it. And some stuff does. It's kind of, it's not the same, obviously, but it's that episode of Friends where Phoebe needs signs to go see her father. And she's like, (laughs) I passed by. A McDonald's and the chi- the flying chicken, you know, like all of these like yeah, really yeah. random. Like I went by a buff- uh, buffet or a buffet and that's my dad's last name. Buffet. Yeah, it's ridiculous. Buffet. Yeah, exactly. And one of them was like had nothing to do with it. And she was like, and my dad liked sandwiches or whatever. It was yeah. like, <laughs> yeah, it was, it was just something crazy. Yeah, exactly. That's kind of what it's like. So, you know, he's in the seventh or eighth grade at this point. Um, and just a few days after that, he started smoking weed and then he felt like that was the only way that he could like numb the pain of being a failure. So it still did bother him. He kind of accepted it. It bothered him, but he smoked weed to just kind of make it go away. And then he was just like this laid back, casual, like give you the shirt off his back, kind of happy go lucky guy. He was just like, whatever happens kind of person. But he smoked weed every single day. And they said that he a lot of people say you can't get addicted to it. They said that he was. So I don't know however you feel about that. But he'd smoked it every single day without fail all day long. I think that if we're going to go with that, like you can be addicted to something. I think that you can be addicted to the feeling that it gives you. Not necessarily the, you know, like the. I think you can be addicted to the effects of it. Yeah. And the habit. Yeah. Like it's like um, I think muscle memory kind of thing like you you know like you got to be doing something with your hands that's why like people say after you quit smoking you like eat a bunch or chew gum or whatever because you have to do that like exactly like the oral fixation and like all this kind of stuff yeah so he drops out of high school his senior year he made it to his senior year but he dropped out and then by the time he was 22 so we kind of fast forward from like eighth grade to 22 he was he did live on his own he had an apartment with a roommate and he was working as a swamper on a garbage truck, which I don't really know what that means. But <laughs> like, what the fuck is a swamper? I don't know. But long and short of it is he's a garbage man. We had an uncle who was interested in being a garbage man. That was his life's goal was to be a garbage man. It says a swamper is a laborer, especially one employed as a general assistant to a riverboat captain. Oh, so in this situation, Swamper is just like basically saying a a garbage man. Hang on. Garbage Swamper. Oh, okay. Collects and dump ref- refuse or recyclable materials from containers to truck. It, why did they call him a... Sw- oh. It's literally just... He didn't drive the truck. He like put the garbage inside of the truck. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, yeah, because sometimes you'll see the garbage trucks driving by. They got the two guys kind of on the back. They hop off. Put the stuff in, hop back on. So he's one of those guys. Okay. Yep. Got it. 
He worked part-time. His brother Todd had joined the Canadian Armed Forces, and Bruce's father had urged him to do the same. So he did. He joined for a little bit, and like pretty much immediately, he got kicked out for a narcotics possession, and then that's when he got the job as a garbage man. His dad kind of pulled some strings and got him employed there. But he liked the job. He, you know, he's like, it's easy. It's straightforward. I do the same thing every day. I don't mess it up. You know, I it's do what outside. I do. I go home. Yeah. You don't have to take work home with you. You know, like, I mean, I can definitely see the uh, benefits there. And he started finding all kinds of stuff that people were throwing away that he was like, well, this is still good. I can totally use this. He found furniture, vacuum cleaners, clothes. Um, Once he found a leather jacket that somebody just threw out and it was like the nicest leather jacket he'd ever seen and better than anything he could afford. And he wore it all the time. It sounds something like like what you would do. Our dad, Miss KB, is convinced that Torella throws out everything that is of importance oh. to him. <laughs> I thought you were going to say that I would find shit in the garbage. And I'm like, absolutely, I would not. <laughs> no, yeah, I throw everything away. You're throwing away perfectly good things. And Miss KB is not here for it. But yeah, he he was he was finding a lot of stuff that he was like, hey, nothing wrong with this. And once he found a Bible and he kept it. And he wasn't like he didn't grow up religious. They didn't like go to church at his house or anything like that. But for some reason, like when he saw the Bible in the garbage, it bothered him. And he was just like, I need to keep this and I don't know why, but I just don't feel like it should be thrown away. In the fall of 1982. Okay, here's another thing about the book. In the book, she changed everybody's names except for the family's names. Maybe she changed Todd's name. I don't know. But she changed like everybody else in the case, like the roommate. So in the in the book, the roommate's name was Jerry. But in here, I just refer to him as the roommate because I don't think that's his real name. But I don't know what his real name is. So okay, his roommate started noticing that something wasn't right. His behavior started changing in the fall of 82. Bruce's eyes started getting really bloodshot all the time, but he wasn't smoking weed anymore. He would go, like, days on end. He wouldn't eat anything. Um, He started seeing things that he felt were ominous or scary, stuff that his roommate didn't see. You know, they'd be watching TV together, and he'd be like, oh, my my God, did you see that? And Jerry's like, see what? Like, it's the regular, you know, he didn't see anything out of the ordinary, and he's like, what would you be seeing that would freak you out so bad? And Bruce is like, how did you not see that? You know, and he would say, that's a sign. That's a sign for me. What Bruce thought was happening was like somebody was coming on the screen and being like Bruce and talking directly to him or, you know, stuff like that. And his roommate and his friends, you know, they'd be hanging out and they're like, yeah, man, I don't I don't know. I don't I don't see it. I don't know what you're talking about. Or he'd see stuff in the sky, like in the constellations. And people would be like, I don't I don't know, man, I don't see it. I'm not sure. This is when he started to tell his family that the end of the world was coming and that he received a message from an angel that he needed to, quote unquote, know God, but he didn't know what for. He didn't know what knowing God technically meant in that context. He didn't know if he was like supposed to prevent the end of the world, if he was supposed to save people from the end of the world. Like he just didn't know what what it all meant, but he knew 
from the messages that the world was ending. He called his father at this point every day, and he's reading passages from the Bible. So he picks up that Bible, and he starts reading it, which was also very odd. Like, I heard an interview um, on Sword and Scale, actually. This was Sword and Scale's first episode ever. This is what got me into True Crime Podcast. Um, But he actually did an an author. He did an interview with the author, Janice Holly Booth. And she said, you know, it's very strange that he was reading, like, he became a voracious reader, but he was dyslexic. He'd always had trouble reading before, but he was, he could not stop reading at this point. And it was just, you know, kind of a strange thing. It was totally out of character for him because he had so much trouble with it before. Mm -hmm. But he would call his dad every day. He's reading passages from the Bible. He's warning him about the end. His dad would just listen to him. And he would say, like, you know, everything's going to be okay, Bruce. He would just try to, like, comfort him. But Bruce, there was no calming him down about it. There was no, okay, you're right, Dad, this isn't happening, you know, kind of thing. It was like, it was happening for him. He once tried to show his brother Todd a cloud that he saw in the shape of a seven-pointed star, which was not there. And when Todd told him that he couldn't see it, Bruce took that as the mirror twin thing. Todd didn't see the star, which meant it was only for Bruce to see because Todd couldn't see it. And because Mm -hmm. they're mirror twins, this is opposite And so all of these things that he's seeing, he figured out these are meant just for me. Of course, nobody else is seeing it because I'm supposed to see it. You know, that was in his mind like that confirmation of why was nobody else seeing these things. He's like, oh, because only I'm supposed to. That's why. Interesting. The angel who gave him messages in dreams started talking to him throughout the day as well. So at first she just appeared to him in dreams and then she... Her voice was constantly talking to him. He started referring to her as the white woman. I don't know if it's because she was like dressed in white or I don't know, but he always called her the white woman. Sometimes he called her the great white whore. I I don't know. The great white whore? Mm Mm-hmm. I don't know if she called herself that in some of his messages or visions or I don't know, but he called her that. I feel like that's one of those things that, you can call yourself that. Other people can't give you that nickname. It's, it would be rude of him to appoint her the great white whore, but okay. Okay. So, but you, you know, you're like the great white whore last night, and you're like, that's what I call myself. That's right. okay. That's right. How, okay. That's what I refer myself as. Yeah, yeah. Right. Okay. So, yeah. So, he he called her, yeah, all kinds of things, but usually the white woman, and He's seeing everything in opposites now. So he's like, oh, I see. She's the white woman. My name is Bruce Blackman, black man. Also, he could be like, well, I'm a white man, but my name is black man. So he he's thinking even my birth, you know, my name at birth was meant for this whole opposite thing. You know, he thinks this mm. is his life's purpose and it's all coming together now. Why am I a white man with the last name Blackman? Oh, it's because everything's in opposites and that's how I get signs. So because he's the quote unquote, or he is quote unquote black man, he must be the Antichrist. So now we're jumping to he's the Antichrist. 
That's a big leap, man. A big leap. He completely stopped sleeping. He stopped eating. He was fueled, it seemed like, only by reading the Bible, and he really honed in on Revelations 10 and 11. That's pretty much the only thing he read. He almost didn't read anything else in the Bible. One night, Bruce's roommate came home with a friend, and they found Bruce setting the table for four guests. And when they asked him what the table was set for, they're like, oh, you know, who's coming over? What's happening? He told them the world was ending that night at 8 o'clock p.m., and they all had to be together for it to happen. And they're like, okay, man, like, I don't, that's funny. I don't get the joke, but like, okay, whatever. And he's like, no, you have to call our other friends. So they had like, I guess, you know, this like immediate kind of friend group or whatever that they did a lot of stuff with. There were two of them that weren't there. So he's like, call them right now. They've got to come over right now. So they called one guy and he's like, I'm not coming over. I'm in bed. I'm already in for the night. Like, I'm not getting out. No, I'm done. And then he's like, okay, call the other one. And she was sick with the flu at home. And they're like, she's not getting out, man. Like, she's sick. Nothing. Nothing's getting her out. Like. Sorry, dude, not going to happen tonight. He was flipping out about this. It was vitally important that these two people came over. They all had to be together for the world to end. All this stuff. And finally, his roommates were like, okay, or his roommate and the friend were like, we're just going to go somewhere else. Like, I don't know what's going on with you, but we're going to give you some time. Maybe when I get back home later, you will have calmed down. So they get to their friend's house, the one that they'd called on the phone. And he said, I'm in for the night. And so they go to his house. Bruce jogs the whole way there. Six blocks, I think. I wrote it down, but yeah, Yeah. six blocks. He's chasing them. He's begging them to call the friend who was sick in bed. And they're like, no, she's got the flu. Like, she's not getting out of the house right now, dude. Like, leave it alone. So he's like, you guys don't believe me. You don't trust me. You know, like, he's brokenhearted. He feels like they're not trusting him. They don't believe him. He thought they were supposed to be friends. And I don't know, this very much upsets him. So he's like, okay, fine, I'm going to leave. He opens the door and he starts yelling, the beast. And oh, no, the beast. And he said that he saw a huge beast with yellow eyes and blood dripping fangs. And they're like, "Okay, so that's the neighbor's dog. Um, This is not a crazy beast. Like, so everybody else saw it, but it wasn't this demon thing that he thought it was. It was just literally a dog that was being taken for a walk, I guess. That makes and me they're so tr- sad for Bruce, though. Like, how terrifying it must be inside Absolutely. of his mind. Yeah. It's like, I've never done, like, acid or mushrooms or anything, but I, I've heard horror stories of people, like, seeing all this stuff. And, like, I've heard people laugh and be like, oh, yeah, whenever he was, like, tripping or whatever, he was in a corner crying and we're all laughing at him. I'm like, that sounds terrifying to me. I don't yeah. know why you don't heard do that. that it's, like, like, 12 hours of that. <laughs> Yeah, like really long. I'm like, uh-uh, I don't that doesn't sound appealing to me at all cuz I certainly don't want my brain to just do all the scariest things it can think of like and me and not be like, able to tell that they're not real. Yeah, I'm too I'm too much of an anxious person and can make things go wrong really quickly that that would not be a fun time for me no matter what. <laughs> yeah, totally. So, they're trying to console him and explain to him this is just a dog, everything's okay and he just ran away, like ran off. So, he he's he's breaking down. I mean, this is this is getting serious. 
He told his brother Todd on the phone during this time that he wasn't eating or sleeping because the white woman was going to kill him if he went to sleep. Bruce told him he was seeing messages on the TV that the world was going to end and he was seeing signs that only he could see. And Todd was in the military. He couldn't leave, you know, whatever. So he's just like, talk to dad. Tell dad what you're seeing. It's all going to be okay. Just talk to dad. At work one day, one of Bruce's coworkers pointed out that an inlet had frozen over. And he was like, I didn't think salt water could freeze. And Bruce was like, well, it can't. And he's like, see, that's another sign just for me because salt water can't freeze. So he is seeing more and more signs more and more frequently. And it's, again, just like fueling that for him. He told his roommate one night that he was possessed by the white woman and that she'd kill him if he went to sleep. And he started going on and on and on about the Bible. And his friend was like, look, I don't know anything about the Bible. I didn't grow up reading the Bible. I don't know anything about it. Like, I can't help you. Because Bruce was trying to have these, like, conversations about what do you think this means and, you know, all this stuff. And he's like, dude, I don't know anything about the Bible. I can't help you there. So he was like, is there somebody that you think that does know about the Bible that we could call and maybe talk to? Because there was, again, no dissuading Bruce from this conversation. There wasn't like... I don't know anything about that. Let's change the subject or let's just watch TV or something like that. He could not stop. And so he's like, who can we call so that you can have this conversation and hash this out? So they called the Jehovah's Witnesses. I don't really know how it works. They called. That's just what they said. They called the Jehovah's Witnesses. He found a guy that he'd talked to once before. And so that guy was like, "Okay, fine, I'll come over. So he comes over. It's like midnight. And immediately Bruce is like, I'm possessed by the devil. Um, all these things. And the guy that came over was like, okay, I'm going to call another guy. I need backup. So he calls yeah. somebody else. <laughs> I'm ill-equipped for this conversation. Yeah. This is not what I was expecting. So they call in somebody else and he starts telling them about the whole opposites thing, you know, and his name is Blackman, but he's actually a white man. He hears the voice of a white woman, but he's black man, you know, all these things. The woman tells him he's God. So if she says he's God, then he has to be the Antichrist because it all has to be opposite, right? He told them the whole Bible was meaningless except for Revelations chapter 10. And they're like, hang on, you can't do that. Like, you can't focus on just one little part of the Bible. You lack context, which means you're not going to get the actual full meaning of anything. Which is 100% and, true. Yeah. And he's like, okay, whatever. But what I'm telling you is I know everything about this because I've received all the messages from the angel. So what you're telling me doesn't matter because everything else is meaningless. And so he just went in circles and obsessively talked that night. And finally at like, I don't know, two or three in the morning, they were like, look, we haven't gotten a word in. You obviously don't want information from us or like help. You just kind of want to like talk, talk at, at somebody. Us? Yeah. And have yeah. somebody agree with them probably. Yeah, you don't want to be told anything other than what you're kind of on the trajectory of. So they were like, you can call us anytime, but we've got to go to bed. Like, it's getting late. They never heard from him again. By mid-December, Bruce had become obsessed with the little book in Revelations. I don't know. I'm not familiar with it. But here is what Bruce decided that it was or whatever. So he he felt like to gain knowledge to gain the knowledge and, like and I enlightenment think maybe, maybe maybe well because he would say like when you eat from the tree of knowledge and all these things and and 
And I think also in order to maybe be saved from the coming apocalypse, he said that you had to eat your little book. So for each person, your book that you would eat, so like for Bruce, was his own semen. And for women, it was their menstrual blood. He started masturbating and eating his own semen. Mm -hmm. I'm upset. I know. And he said that every time he did it, he could feel himself being brought closer to God because he thought that's what he had to do. If I may, um, just a little, I don't even know if you can call this a silver lining. At least he's um, eating something. Yeah. Okay. Pro- is there protein? I don't know. I don't know. Because he's not eating. I can't even believe he could produce anything at that point. Right? Yeah. You would think his body would like shut down at that point. You would think. Yeah, I don't know. So he's doing all these things while living with his roommate, and his roommate is like, I think you need to go stay with a family member. Something's going on. I can't be around you all the time. You're not... Like, he was thinking that if he stayed with a family member, they could encourage him to eat, to sleep, to shower, to do the things that you're supposed to be doing to survive. And he knew that he wasn't doing those things in the apartment. Something was going on. So Bruce at first was like, I don't want to do that. Um, And then he was like, oh, wait, that's actually perfect because the only way that I can get my family to eat their books is to talk to them in person and to be around them. So he felt that like all his family members were a part of the signs. They were a part of the apocalypse. They, They all needed to be together for all of this to happen, for his mission to be accomplished, I guess, like all these things. He started obsessing over numbers at this point. He felt especially drawn to the number seven, which appeared in the book of Revelation many times. He thought at first that this was his siblings, but then he was like, well, that's only six, so that doesn't fit. And then he was like, hang on, he has three sisters. He's like, one of them has to be pregnant. That's the seventh. Okay, that is really, it's kind of, I mean, I guess it just shows the the state of his mental health at that point. But you would think, because he's so dead set on finding all these signs, right? But when faced with the fact that it's not, it can't possibly happen, he just forces it to fit. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he does. He first went to stay with his sister, Karen, and he asked her if she was pregnant, but she wasn't. And then he was like, this is so crazy. So he's like, okay, so you're not pregnant. Are you on your period then? Like he asked her husband if Karen was on her period. And he's like, well, she is, but I don't think you should really be talking about that. And like, it's not really your bit. Like, it's weird to ask. And like, I don't know about that. So he's like, great. She's on her period. She's got to eat her book. So she went to work. He stayed at her house because, you know, this is, again, his descent was very quick. So this is her brother. She'd known all her life. She felt totally comfortable with him being in her home while she was at work, you know, whatever. So while she was at work, he took one of her used pads and squeezed as much blood as he could out of it, which was only a few drops. But he was like, that's all I need. He added it to the blender with orange juice, two pages from his Bible, and two packets of chicken soup. During that day, while Karen was at work, 
He talked to his sister Angela on the phone, so he started calling his other sisters to find out if they were pregnant. Angela was pregnant. And nobody knew. They hadn't told anybody yet. So, you know, he's like, I'm on to this. I'm on to something. This is real. Like, that was the seven that I was looking for. When Karen got home from work that day, he demanded that she drink her book when she got home. And she, at first, she was like, absolutely not. I don't know what we're talking about. No, no, no. And then she's like, oh, my God, if it'll shut him up, fine. I'll take a drink. She took a sip and she was just like, oh, my, I'm going to throw up. This is disgusting. What is this? So he told Robert, her husband, that he'd made her eat, quote unquote, her book. And Robert was like, Karen Bruce needs help. There's something wrong. Like, there's something wrong. And Karen got so afraid of him at this point that she was like, I'm going to go stay with my neighbor until he's gone. I'm not coming back home with him there. And she just felt like she felt like her brother Bruce was gone. And there was, you know, it's like you can wave your hand in front of his face, but he is not there anymore. He's not behind those eyes anymore. The sisters talked to each other and they decided, okay, something's going on. We need to find a psychiatrist to evaluate Bruce. So during this time, while they're looking for a psychiatrist, Bruce starts making some like really strange phone calls. He calls the Canadian Department of Defense, National Defense. He tried to call the Pope. Like, I don't know what specifically he was going to do with that. But he started calling some very strange numbers, obviously. Like, this is not, you're not on a regular, like, Tuesday going to be like, you know what, I'm going to try and call the Pope. Yeah. Not going to happen. The psychiatrist came to Karen and Robert's house to evaluate Bruce. He was rambling about the Bibles. He was asking how many candles, um, I don't remember the name of the church, uses. How many candles do they have on their candelabra? I know it's seven. It's got to be seven. It's got to be seven. And he was like, Freaking out about it. So the doctor has his nurse call and she confirms that it's six, not seven. And like you said, he makes it fit. He's like, okay, well, okay, yeah, that's fine. That makes sense. Because one of us is dead, six living. So he has a little brother, Ricky. So he's a twin. They, and then he's got the three sisters. They've also got a little brother, Ricky. And Ricky was a twin, but his twin, Raymond, was stillborn. So technically there would be seven siblings. So he's saying that's that makes sense. I see why they use six because they're factoring in Raymond, who's no longer living. Still fits. Don't worry. about it. No worry. He went on and on telling the psychiatrist that he was possessed by the devil. He was the Antichrist. He was hearing voices from a woman. He was trapped in time, like all these things. And the psychiatrist was like, okay, this is obviously not, not the norm, but I don't think he's violent. So he gave him, he took his blood pressure and his blood pressure was a little high. And so he's like, Bruce, I need to give you something for your blood pressure. So he gave him a tranquilizer shot and he fell asleep. And the doctor was like, okay, you guys need to bring him into the clinic this week. I think he needs to have maybe like some testing done, more evaluation. He was like, you know, you can have him committed if you wanted to, and then they could do further testing and things like that, maybe get him on a, a medication regimen, stuff like that. So he wrote out kind of like a, a committal form and signed it so that if it, he said, if it gets bad enough, bring him to 
the psychiatric thing. Oh, yeah. I see, I see. Yeah. Institution. And you can have him committed even if he doesn't want to go. If he won't go willingly, this form will, will get him in there. And he gave him a prescription for an oral tranquilizer that he's supposed to take four times a day. Good Lord. Mm-hmm. And then, like, told him to get that appointment or whatever. So his dad was like, okay, we're definitely going to get him that appointment. Three days later, Bruce just appears at his sister Angela's house. So it's 530 in the morning. She's asleep in her bed. Her husband is next to her. Totally asleep. And then she wakes up with Bruce just standing over her. That is terrifying. Oh, my gosh. Uh Yeah. She didn't know he was coming. She didn't know anything about that. It's just she opens her eyes and she's like, oh, my God, Bruce, you scared me. Like, she's freaking out. That's what toddlers do. Yes. And it's so scary. It really does freak us out. But she lived over 400 miles away. So he made a he took a big trip to go just out of nowhere to just show up there. So Angela, by this point, was halfway through her pregnancy because remember, he'd called her. And he knew she was pregnant. He knew somebody was pregnant, but she hadn't announced it yet. So by this point, she's like four months or so in. Her husband, Fred, was like, I don't think I want to go to work today. Maybe I should just stay home because I'm just not sure. It's very weird that he showed up and that he didn't knock on the door. He just came into our bedroom and stood over you. (laughs) Like, yeah, I'm not super feeling comfortable with that. And she's like, oh, my God, it's Bruce. Like, come on. Don't worry about it. He's going through a rough time, but he's fine. I know, you know, I can handle him. He's fine. So Fred's like, okay, fine. I'll go to work. So he goes to work. Angela went back to bed for a little bit. They told Bruce to go to bed and she gets up a little bit later and she's like, oh man, you know what? I'm hungry. How do you feel about having an omelet? And Bruce is like, well, I'm not hungry. I don't want to eat anything, but I will make you the omelet. You just sit back and relax. And she's like, okay, that sounds good. So he's making this omelet. He has his back turned to her. She is watching him do it, but he was telling her that he had a couple of secret ingredients he was adding, and he didn't want her to know what they were. It's a surprise. And she's like, oh, okay, that sounds cool. Like, whatever. I feel like, based on what we know about Bruce at this point, it could literally be anything, none of it any good. Like, exactly. Yeah. Semen, menstrual blood. Could Yeah, it could be anything. So... He makes her this omelet. She takes a couple bites and she's like, okay, I don't want to hurt your feelings, Bruce. This does not taste good. It tastes really bad. And she's like, I don't, maybe the eggs went bad or something. I don't know. So she puts the rest of it in the dog's bowl and the dog is like, woohoo, got, you know, got food, table food, whatever. So then like at some point the dog falls asleep as per usual, you know, dogs kind of nap throughout the day. They can't get the dog to wake up. He won't wake up. And so they're trying to get him up to, like, take him for a walk or whatever. And Angela was feeling kind of weird, too. She wasn't feeling great. They try to get the dog up to take him for a walk. And he just literally runs into the wall and falls over. He's out of it. He can't stay awake. And so they're like, Bruce, do you know why the dog can't get up? Do you know what's going on with this? And his response is, the dog wasn't supposed to eat the pills. You were. What pills? That is sinister and very yes. like ominous. Oh my gosh. Yes. And she's pregnant. Like, even if she wasn't, but still. So they get it out of him finally. They're like, what pills? Tell me what's going on right now. He brought his tranquilizer pills, but he crushed up seven of them and put them in the omelet. Seven of said, them? Seven of them. And he said that God told him to do it 
because the baby was going to do something and he had to stop this unborn child from whatever it was that was going to happen. So he gave, he tried to give her seven tranquilizers. Seven makes sense because the number seven. Exactly. So luckily, well, I think they kind of don't really mention it, but it, it seems like the dog survives. I know Angela does. Um, but she did She did have to go to the hospital because she felt like something was really wrong with the baby after that point. She didn't feel right. And they told her she should be prepared to lose her child. And she was in the hospital for like a week. And then she got out and she was okay. Bruce continued to see the psychiatrist. In the book, his name is Dr. Jepson. Again, I don't know if that's real or not. For appointments. And he told Bruce that he was getting better and just stay on your meds. He's like, you know what? You're improving. This is getting better. You're doing great. Just keep on the meds, okay? How how is how is he supposed to know that? Like based off of what information? Exactly. That's what and I'm like, if anybody told you any of the other stuff that's going on, then I would think that you would be like you're not improving. You literally tried to kill your sister. And, and her child. baby and her dog. Yes. And her dog. Yeah. Like, okay, this is not good. You're showing up to places unannounced, standing over people while they're sleeping. This is not normal behavior. Like, right. this is not your mental condition improving in any way, shape, or form. During this time, Bruce got accepted into a Millwright certification program. So his dad had applied for this for him a long time ago. And I guess like an opening happened to come up in the middle of all this. And he finally got accepted. His dad wanted him to get some kind of like vocational training so that he could, you know, get paid better. You know, he's like, I know you're not going to go and get an academic degree. The military didn't work out. Why don't we get you like certified in a trade so that you can at least, you know, do something and make good money doing it, whatever. So, and this was 400 miles away from home. And Bruce didn't want to go. He's like, I don't want to. This is not, I'm not into it, whatever. And his dad was just like, obviously cared about it a lot. He'd done all the work to get him into the program. Um, And so Bruce was like, fine, it's really important to you all go. So he quits his job so that he can go do this program. I don't know how long it was supposed to be, but he had a dorm there and everything. Like he was going to live there for this program. At this time, he'd become gaunt. People described him as looking skeletal. He's not eating at all. His clothes are just like hanging off of him. He's tiny. He's not eating. He's not drinking, really. He's not doing a whole lot. He hadn't washed his hair in God knows how long. He's not sleeping. He's got just like really dark circles under his eyes. He's not looking well at all. His mom, Irene, went and visited the psychiatrist one day and basically just vented about how stressed out she was. Because at that time, they were having trouble with Ricky, too. He was 16, and he is dabbling in drugs. He's kind of rebelling, all this stuff. So she's frustrated with Ricky. They've got Bruce, who's on a steep decline. Yeah, that's a lot for anybody to take. Yeah, she feels like her husband isn't handling it well. He's not handling it the way she wants him to. They've got a lot of debt. There's just all this stuff. So she goes to just kind of like talk at him and he didn't really get another word in, but he wrote in the chart. She talked nonstop for a full hour. Like, that's it. So she talks about all that. Then Bruce's dad, Richard, calls to 
let the doctor know that Bruce isn't sleeping again. He's talking about the Bible again like he was before. And I don't know if he's taking his medicine like he's supposed to because it's four times a day. I have a job. I can't be on top of him all the time. Like either he's not taking his medicine or it's not working because it seems like he's regressing at this point. And this was just eight days before the massacre. So Dr. Jeffson said, don't let him go to Nelson to do this apprenticeship program. It's 400 miles away. A change like that will send him spinning. It's going to increase his anxiety. It's going to make his symptoms way worse. You can't let him go. He needs to stay home. And he's like, okay, well, I'll talk to Bruce and see. And Bruce is like, nope, going, definitely going, got to go. So Bruce leaves for Nelson. He takes a bus there. He's there for a long, or the bus ride is pretty long. He meets a woman on the bus named Mary. I don't think Mary was real. Well, I know Mary. She's not real. But he meets this woman named Mary who tells him he holds the key to everything. She was supposed to meet him on this bus. It's another sign. You know, God told her to be there and all these things. She says that she has died four times, but they kept needing her. So she kept coming back. And she's like, death is really, it's not even a big deal. Like, you don't even bleed when you die. There's no blood. It's awesome. Like, it's great. It's no problems at all, really. And then you just come back and it's like, whatever, when they need you. And so he's like, okay, well, that doesn't sound so bad. They talked for hours. They even went out like at one of the stops on the the bus. They went out and like, they didn't ice skate, but they were like kind of running around on ice. They're laughing, they're falling, whatever. I just imagine like, almost like that movie High Tension, where like, oh yeah. You know, because in her mind, she's having conversations with another person, all this stuff, but it's just her. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, what did other people see him doing on this bus ride? He's sitting next to this woman for six hours talking to her. He went and got coffee with her and they're engrossed in this conversation. I mean, he's obviously just having a conversation and nobody else is there and he doesn't know it. That is so surreal. That's scary. I know. It like gives me chills talking about it and like thinking about it. And it's just, it's sad. Mm -hmm. The next morning, so he gets there, he gets into his dorm, he goes to sleep. The next morning, he's like, out of here. He flies back home immediately. The voices were getting worse. They're telling him and they're like incessantly in his brain and he can't get them to stop. And they're saying the gap is narrowing. You're running out of time. You are Satan. You are Zeus. He said that it told him he was Zeus because it rhymes with Bruce. Um, But it started saying, kill your family at this point. And at one point, while he was either at the airport or maybe on the airplane, the voices were, you know, going crazy in his brain. And they were saying, kill your family and all this stuff. And he physically out loud yelled, stop. And all these people were looking at him like, what's going on? And he's like, oh, sorry. But they were like, the voices were assaulting him by this point. On January 17th, 1983, Bruce's father called Dr. Jeffson to let him know that Bruce had come home from Nelson and he was not well. It doesn't look good. Dr. Jeffson was like, you need to bring Bruce to the hospital now to be committed and evaluated. And his dad was like, ah, you know, it's night, it's late, it's a few miles away. Uh, he is fine. I'll bring him in the morning. And Dr. Jeffson is like, I really think you need to take him tonight. Like, 
all of those things happening is just like he said, going to skyrocket what's going on. And he's like, he needs to go now. He did something that's very impulsive. He came all the way back here. He didn't tell you he was coming back here. He traveled 400 miles. You need to have him committed tonight. And his dad was like, man, I'm going to wait on that. Before bed that night, Bruce went into his brother Ricky's room. Ricky was getting ready for bed. He's like brushing his hair and all kinds of stuff. He's like looking in the mirror. He can see Bruce behind him. He's talking about the apocalypse. He's talking about, you know, the end of the world, all these things. And Ricky is like 16. He doesn't want to hear it. He is annoyed by it. And he's like, are you going to start talking about masturbating again? Like, I don't want to hear that. And Bruce is like, you know, you really need to take this seriously, all this stuff. But while he's talking, he notices Bruce sticks something under Ricky's bed in the mirror. He doesn't say anything to him. And then finally, when Bruce is like, okay, well, see you later, he leaves the room. Ricky goes under the bed and looks, and it's a hunting knife under his bed. And he's like, why would you put a knife under my bed? He's like, is he going to come back in and kill me with it? Like when I'm sleeping, like what's going on? So he went downstairs. He hid it in his closet in a shoe. And then he went downstairs and told his dad. And he was like, I'm not comfortable with this. Like, I don't know what's going on, but I'm certainly not sleeping in my room tonight by myself because I don't know what he's going to do. And so his dad's like, it's okay. Just sleep down here. I'll stay awake with him all night. I'm sure it'll be okay. So Ricky goes to bed with the TV on. He's freaked out. Um, and his dad's just like, well, I'll stay awake. I'll keep an eye on him, whatever. At 445 in the morning, Bruce calls his sister, Bobby, and he's like, Bobby, something's happening. I have a knife. You need to come over here immediately. I want you to bring Karen because Angela lives over 400 miles away. Todd is in the military, but they live close by. You need to bring Karen, but do not bring your husband, John, Bobby's husband. Don't bring him. Just you and Karen. Bobby immediately calls Dr. Jeffson. And it's 4.49 in the morning when Bobby calls Dr. Jeffson. He wakes up. She tells him what Bruce has said. I've got a knife. Come over here now. Something's happening. He said, do not go over there. Call the police. She's like, I don't want to upset my father by having the police show up. I'm going to go. I can handle it. Um, I'll call you and let you know what happens. But just thought you should know about this. And he's like, he needs to be committed You have to call the police. He said he has a weapon. She's like, no, I'm not going to do it. See, and I thought at first Dr. Jeffson was the one that kind of dropped the ball on it because I'm like, well, he's saying at the very beginning, like, well, he's not violent, so everything is fine. But now I'm like, oh, my gosh, he's telling all of you guys, like, this is serious. Let's not take this lightly. Let's let's get him evaluated. Let's get him committed. And everybody's like, no, we'll wait. Yeah, I'll, I'll wait till the morning. Yeah. Or let me go over there and see what's going on and then I'll call you back or whatever. And so at this time, the voices are absolute. I mean, they're relentless. They're saying, God needs your family. You've got to kill them. This is the only way to send them to God and save them. This was his way to be a hero. He was going to save his family. Well, actually, what he was going to do was going to save the universe because it would save his family, but it would save the entire universe, too, from whatever was happening. This is the only way he can stop it is he's got to kill his family, but they'll come back, right? And they won't even bleed. So he started from like the first time that he heard the voices saying, you've got to kill your family. He's like, I don't think I can do that. You know, that sounds scary to me. I I don't know that I can do that. I don't want them to suffer. But the longer he went on and he's hearing this stuff from Mary, they're not even going to bleed. 
he started to envision them as they died being like turning into light and being like beamed up into heaven basically and that they were happy he started seeing them as like happy and thankful that this was happening and so he felt like i'm doing a good thing here he wasn't scared of it anymore so bruce's dad stayed awake with him right that night during that time bruce went down to the basement this is very like amityville horror which i know was based on a true story elsewhere but it really seems more like this, <laughs> like, because the the real guy that it happened or whatever, I think he, I don't think he was actually found to be mentally ill. I think he claimed that, but it was really him trying to get money, I think. Mm. I could be totally wrong about that. But this is very, like, that situation. He's in the basement. That's where the dad keeps all the guns because they go hunting on a regular basis, all that kind of stuff. They're locked up. But Bruce knows the combination. He's taken gun safety courses. He's a good shot. He knows how to handle guns. You know, he would help his dad clean the guns and all that kind of stuff. He's always used them responsibly. He knows the code. So he goes down there. He gets the guns out. He's planning on using. His dad's sitting upstairs. He calls Bobby to tell her and Karen to come over. And then he gets his, he picks up the rifle that he wants to use. He gets himself prepared for what's going to happen. He walks upstairs. He looks at his dad. His dad yells, Bruce, don't. And he shoots him. Right there. And his dad, like, held up his hand to kind of cover. The shot went through his hand and, or, like, grazed. Yeah, I think it went through his hand and it, it went into his cheek. And it wasn't fatal, but obviously it made him stagger and he fell down. And so Bruce walks over to him and he shoots him. Well, he, I think as he's going down, he shoots again, he misses. And then once he goes down, he shoots him three more times until he's dead. So Ricky is downstairs, too. He hears the shot, and he runs to the noise to see what's wrong with his dad. He sees his dad on the ground in a pool of blood. He turns his head, and there's Bruce with a gun pointed at him. And he shoots Ricky. And Ricky turned to try to run. Bruce followed him. Well, he shoots at Ricky the first time he misses. Ricky tries to run away, and then he follows him, and he, he hits and shoots his brother. So he falls to the ground. Meanwhile, Irene wakes up. She's the other person in the house. She's upstairs in her bed. She hears the noise and she's like, oh, gosh, is there, you know, she's disoriented. What's going on? It's five in the morning. She yells down, honey, to, you know, what's going on down there? This is so scary. Bruce hears her voice yell, honey. And it's like a horror movie. He looks upstairs and he's like, "Okay, I got to go up there. So he goes up the stairs like two at a time. I mean, he's like booking it up there. Yeah. Yeah. He opens the door. She's just getting out of the bed. She sees him with the gun. She turns to run away and he shoots her in the back. She falls down. She's gurgling and she's talking and saying something, but he can't understand what she's saying. And so he walks over to her and he shoots her two times in the head to make sure she's dead. It's just, oh my God, it's so crazy. And he goes back downstairs and he dra- he's, he's seeing all the blood now because he's like, I thought there wasn't supposed to be blood. I'm I'm very confused. I thought he didn't think they would just lay there. He thought they would kind of float up, and that's not happening. There's a lot of blood. He knows that Bobby and Karen are on their way over. He doesn't want them to see all the blood. So he starts trying to clean it up. He drags his dad and Ricky downstairs to the basement, and he starts trying to clean up the blood, and then he's like, this is just no use. They're, it's not. It's just not going to go away. 
Then during that time, he hears the car pull into the driveway. So he knows Karen and Bobby are there. He hears Karen yell that, you know, go on ahead. Um, Her shoe had come off. She's like, I'm just going to fix my shoe here. But she heard John's voice too, which was Bobby's husband. And he was like, tell them not to bring him. Like, why is he here? But whatever, I've got to do what I've got to do. So he sneaks out of the house and into the garage where Karen is. He sneaks up behind Karen and she turns and she's like, Bruce, he shoots her immediately. John and Bobby hear this. Bobby has gone into the house. John is still in the garage, but exiting it. So he turns around and he's like, hey, 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 you don't have to do this. Please don't do this. You know, what's going on? We can work this out. Give me the gun. Everything's going to be okay. All this stuff. He shoots at John. He misses. Um, John runs out of the garage into the yard. So this is the scene that the neighbor is watching and is like, what's going on out there? These people are kind of running around. There's a lot of yelling. You know, what's going on? So John's yelling for help as he's running to try to get away. Bruce aimed again and fired. He hits John, who kind of like took a knee when he went down. And this is when Bruce is like forcing him and get inside the house, get inside the house and all this stuff. So they get into the garage and Bruce is telling John, you're the devil. But I mean, he had been saying that he was the devil, but now he's telling John that he is. And he said, I told them not to bring you, but if they did, that must mean that you're supposed to die too. You know, he's like, that wasn't in the original plan, but because you're here, it has to mean that you're supposed to die. So here we go. So he shoots John in the face six times total over and over and over, like in the face and the head. Oh, my God. And he was still breathing. And he's like, I think he even said, you fucker, why won't you die? And so he looks around and he finds a hammer and he smashes his head completely into the point that it's unrecognizable. By this time, Bobby has gone into the house. She has seen all the blood. She hears the shots outside. So she runs into the garage and she's like, oh, my God. She sees Bruce over her husband bashing his face in with a hammer. So she runs over and she's like, don't do this. She's trying to pull Bruce off of him. She tries to put her hands over her husband's face to protect it. And Bruce is like, he actually hit her hand in the process of doing this. And after he finishes with John, he turns and chases her and she's she sees this is there's no helping me. So she tries to run away and he shot her twice. She fell to the ground. So this is outside. So remember, then the neighbor is seeing her running and she's saying, not me, you know, please not me help all this stuff. So he shoots her. He drags her into the garage. He drops her so hard that her skull cracks against the concrete. And he's like, okay, now I guess I, I guess he's like going to not necessarily tidy everything up, but just kind of finish what he's doing there. So he goes to go back inside and he passed by Karen, who was still breathing. So he shot her again. Then he hears John gurgle again. Oh, my gosh. This poor man. He hits him a few more times with the hammer. He hears Bobby gasp. He hits her with the hammer until he's sure she's dead. And he's like, okay, my job is almost done. Now I got to figure out how to get close enough to Angela and Todd to finish the job. But by then, the neighbor has called the police because he heard the shots. And so the police show up. So he's not able to finish the job. Thank goodness. Um, And obviously, I I don't know how he thought that was going to happen. I mean, 
maybe he could have gotten away if the neighbor hadn't called for help, but that would have been a very difficult thing to pull off. So he was sent to the Forensic Psychiatric Institute, they call it Riverview, and he was receiving around-the-clock care. Um, He was initially found unfit to stand trial because of his mental illness, but in April of 1983, he was deemed fit because he'd been going through treatment, he'd been on medication, he'd started to improve. So in November of 83, his trial began, and it was like three or four days, I think, a lot. It was very doctor-heavy testimony. Um, He was found not guilty by reason of insanity. He was committed to the Forensic Psychiatric Institute, and the jury thought he would be held there for the rest of his life because he murdered six people. Like, yeah, he was he was legally insane when it happened, but he needs treatment, right? Well, during this time, laws concerning that verdict, that type of verdict, they they stopped calling it not guilty by reason of insanity and started calling it not criminally responsible due to mental illness or something like that, I think. And they basically said that the law, the language of the law was very vague, that the way that it was worded was that if you were found not guilty by reason of insanity, you would be um, institutionalized at the pleasure or leisure or whatever of the, I, I don't know the terms there. To me, it sounded like the judge. So that person could choose basically what they thought was, you know, it didn't have these strict like for this sentence or for this crime, your max is this and your, you know, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. It didn't have that kind of language. It seemed too vague. So they felt like there were a lot of people who had been deemed criminally, not criminally responsible for something that there were people in institutionalized that should have been let out that weren't because the language was so vague and there weren't caps on it, all this kind of stuff. So during that time, all of this is happening. So they started letting people out because they changed the law. In 1993, the government, the Canadian government, helped Bruce Blackman to change his name in preparation of being released. So there were different types of releases And you could have like, and he started with being able to leave the facility at times. Then he started, then he moved to a halfway house. You know, there's like different levels. And during those levels, you're still monitored all the time. But they have what's called an absolute discharge. And once you get absolute discharge, you're not monitored. You get to leave. You get to do whatever you want. You can change your name, all this stuff. So in 1995, he was released and given absolute discharge. And he was. Who knows where he is? Oh, my gosh. He just lives wherever he lives. We don't know what his name is. His surviving family members are terrified. You know, because in in court, you know, it came out that he was supposed to finish the job. Like, again, how do you know that he's taking his medicine? How mm-hmm. do you know that, you know, it's just how do you know that he's not gone back to taking illicit drugs, smoking weed, you know, all that kind of stuff. Those things had a factor in it. And and like you said earlier, you know, it seemed like there were times that the doctor said you need to have him committed, you need to call the police, all this stuff. He at any time, though, had the ability to order Bruce committed without the family's approval. He didn't have to get the family to agree to it. 
But he said in court during the trial, his testimony was, well, we like to have the family's approval if at all possible. Okay, fine. But they don't know what you know. They don't know how mental illness works. And he ended up being diagnosed with schizophrenia. Mm -hmm. And, you know, obviously uh, he had some he had a psychotic break. But you can't put that on the family because they don't know. Like, you're the doctor. Yeah, they're they're not the professional, the medical professional there. But in the end, did it really matter? Because, I mean, of course it did. I'm not saying that it didn't matter. Like the 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 people who were murdered, obviously, like this could this could have been lives spared. But at the end of the day, where we are right now is he could have not killed them. He could have killed them. Either way, he would have been released and it really didn't matter. Right. So it's like, you know, the outcome would have been the same. I guess that's true if he would. Yeah. The outcome of him being released, because I mean, it just seems like if he had been committed earlier on in this episode, could he have not had this full mental break with reality? Could he have gotten treatment then? then he'd have at least family members who'd be checking in on him or that he could live with or whatever. You know, he could have been properly diagnosed. He could have been properly medicated. I don't know, all these things. And now he is, now he has killed six people. He, I feel like his life in a way is lost because like as he, I mean, he he still has freedom and stuff like that. Don't, don't get me wrong. But this is it's it's a different situation than somebody who says i want life insurance money i'm going to kill that person or you know whatever it is or a serial killer who's getting his rocks off by killing people right he had a complete break with reality and as he got medicated and as he got treatment and as he understood that what he did was wrong that he wasn't saving the universe from this apocalypse and all this stuff he was completely torn apart by what he had done because when it was happening, he thought he, he thought that's what he was supposed to be doing. So he's lost his most of his fa- he's lost his whole family. The remaining family members are terrified of him, and I don't blame him. Right, absolutely. But to but to completely discharge like okay, so here's the thing because what they said about all those laws too was like you know that it was basically written like that all mental that all people who are mentally ill are violent and that's not true and of course that's not true and that they had they basically like anybody who was you know found to have this mental illness they treated them as if they were going to be violent forever and they were holding them too long and things like this it's not true not not all people who are mentally ill are violent that's actually the it's the opposite it's they're typically more likely to be victims of violence rather than perpetrate it but Bruce Blackman was violent. He killed six people. He would have killed eight if he could. Yeah, and he has proven that he cannot, I don't want to say be trusted, but you know what I mean. He has proven that his track record is not such that he's going to continue to take his medication and stay on top of that kind of thing. Because I feel like with that kind of thing, a lot of times, We've heard it from all kinds of different, like on on all kinds of scales with when you have a personality disorder, when you have mental illness, sometimes you think, okay, well, I'm on top of this. I don't need it. Exactly. It's fine. Yeah. Yeah. You think I've, I've beaten it. I'm good now. I don't need to take the medicine anymore. I'm doing great. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
or you know what? It's been a long time. I'm on top of it. I can start drinking now. I can start, you know, I can do drugs every once in a while if I want to or whatever it is, like Mm -hmm. things that will counteract maybe what you're on or, you know, whatever it is. Like, yeah, you just, you don't know what's going to happen. And with somebody who has murdered six people, I think we can say that he is violent. Yes. And at the very, very, very least, if we are going to decide to release him, let's check in every once in a while. Let's like keep track of what's going on here. Yeah. At the very, very, very least. Right. Because then what you've done is you've taken the remaining family members who feel like if he, if for whatever reason, this these visions come back and all this kind of stuff, the voices and all that, if he stops taking his medicine, whatever it is, they have moved multiple times. They've changed their numbers. They've done a lot, but they feel like they're always looking behind them. They don't mm-hmm. feel safe. Right. Absolutely. So like you're pro- you would be protecting society by keeping up with him. But I mean, these people, that's a horrible way to live. That's terrifying. Mm hmm. You know, it's yeah. crazy. It's so scary. So sad. It is. It is. It's really sad. So I don't know. I don't know where he is, but that's it. Hmm. Well, rough stuff. Yeah. yeah. I know. I just, I feel awful now. I, I know. Sorry, guys. It's very interesting. I mean, it's, it's important to talk about this kind of stuff, obviously. Yeah. And I think at the very least, it, makes everybody like take a look at new laws that have passed or laws that need to be restructured or something. And if you get a good, healthy dialogue about things that have been taboo in the past, then we can hopefully learn from it and grow. Yes, totally. Prevent things in the future. Yes. And of course, I think now it's probably a good idea just to go ahead and go watch a Disney movie or something that's a feel-good thing, just to pull yourself out of this uh, feeling. Yes. Yeah, I would say so. I agree with yeah. that wholeheartedly. Yeah. yeah. Okay. All right. Well, um, you know, see you next time. <laughs> Thank you for listening and we will catch you on the next episode. Bye. Bye. We'd love to hear your thoughts on this case. Connect with us on Instagram or Facebook to continue the conversation. Thanks for listening and we will meet you back here next week. Bye. Bye. The theme song for the show is created and composed by Stephen Toby. You can find more of Stephen's work on SoundCloud. Our logo was created by Sloane Williams of Sophisticated Crayon. You can find more of her work on Etsy. Visit us at killerqueenspodcast.com for merch and other info about the show. Bye.